Welcome to Bollywood is for Lovers. I'm Aaron Fraser. And I'm Matt Bose. In this episode, we will be discussing KSC's lavish 1960 epic, Mughaliazam. Oh, Matt, we have finally watched Mughaliazam. We are finally ready to sit down and talk about it. Yeah, not a lot of preamble in this episode today, no. folks. This is straight to the straight to the biscuits. But I have to say, I'm a little nervous to talk about this movie, which maybe why I've been putting it off because it's so big. Mm-hmm. You it's know? I mean, this considered this- the biggest uh, box office of all time if you take inflation into mm-hmm. account and. It's just commonly considered the finest movie that Bollywood has produced. This film casts a huge shadow over all of Bollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think you can talk about Bollywood without, uh, at some point, getting to this film. And we finally have. Yeah, this, <laughs> but I'm, I'm this Sholay and Mother this. India, right? Yeah, yeah, that seems to be... Well, I mean, and there, there's obviously some other films. Um, but those are the three that seem to kind of loom very large in the Bollywood canon. So Mother India, we'll get to it another episode. That one we actually both have seen. Yeah, we, we both saw that in film school, but I feel like... Film school in university. We didn't go to film school. Yeah, not in film school, yeah. In uh, in film classes. Uh, but I feel like maybe Mughaliazam is closer to Bollywood. Like it's, it's like the platonic Bollywood movie, whereas Mother India, I feel like it it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. This one feels like Bollywood kind of molded itself around it yeah. and would be better off showing this in class. But it's also three hours long, so that's probably why they didn't. Mother India's got to be about three hours long, too. I don't remember, but it sure felt long. Yeah. This movie did not feel as long. No, first thing about Mughal Azam, it actually goes along in a pretty solid clip. Yeah, even though kind of after the fact I realized not much happened. No. And yet it was long and it felt very quick. It's full of import. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's just because it's it's so immersive. This film really drew me in. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was you know such a such a gem to watch. Well, before we really get into it, how about you yes. uh, give our listeners a little bit of detail? They they probably all know this, but for our well, for our Western Bollywood. yeah for our Western listeners who come to us possibly through your other podcast yeah who aren't as familiar with uh, Hindi cinema maybe uh, fill them in on it. Yeah, I hate to always kind of find a correlation in the Western film industry to kind of relate everything back to. It's to, useful, though. Yeah, to, to kind of um I don't think it's insulting. You know? I mean, I think it's like, it's just a way of getting yourself in the mindset. And if you are a Western film fan who doesn't know Hindi films, yeah. it's, it's, it's just to see the scope and uh, the, the, you know... The scale that it's working on. Yes. So what I was going to say is I don't always think it's appropriate, but here I think it's very, very useful because this film is a combination of Gone with the Wind and Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Taylor's the the 1960s Cleopatra. Um, It has the kind of um, stature that Gone with the Wind has. The length. The length. Um, And the kind of nation-building aspects. Um, yeah. I don't actually know, Matt, because I'm making this statement, despite the fact that I've never seen Gone with the Wind. See, I have or seen Cleopatra. I, I have seen Gone with the Wind, and I have seen Cleopatra. Also, I've read Gone with the Wind, so I'll let you know if you make a mistake. Okay, uh, and kind of the the production story of Cleopatra, and this relative time frame too. Yeah, yeah. So 
It's directed by K. Asif, who in his lifetime only made one other film, 1945's Pool. Yeah, and the title means The Emperor of the Mughals as well. Mm-hmm. He began development for the film in 1944, and filming began in the early 1950s, so in 1954, I believe. So it would take a good six-ish years from starting filming to it premiering. And, that, and in that amount of time, I mean, India became its own country. Yep. There were many setbacks in the project, including partition. Yeah, that'll do it. Uh, because the initial financier ended up moving to Pakistan, mm-hmm. and Essie had to find you know, a, you know, someone else to, to back the film. And uh, it became the most expensive Indian film made at the time. I couldn't quite find out if adjusted for inflation, it would still be... The most expensive Bollywood film made. It certainly is lavish. Or the most expensive Indian or Bollywood film made. Yeah. It, um, it, it's a lavish production. And uh, yeah. we, we actually just watched a short documentary about it. And mm-hmm. they said that some of the sets, when they weren't in use, they charged admission mm-hmm. so people could look around them. Like this uh, this glass palace that they made. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's a decent way of keeping your uh, cash flow in <laughs> check if, if you're not using the set at the time. Um, the budget for one song sequence in this film was more than the budget for most films at the time. There's got to be, what, eight or nine songs in it? So. Uh, there's 12. Yeah, okay. They recorded 20, but they only used 12. They recorded 20? Yeah, eight So they spent the amount of one movie <laughs> 20 times and then only used 12 of them? Uh, thereabouts, yes. I, I mean, some songs were more expensive than others. Yeah, the one obviously. where she's in the... When she's in the dungeons, probably pretty cheap. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yes, these these lavish sets um, that they would charge a mission for when they weren't using them uh, took two years to build. And again, it costs more than the entire budget of most Bollywood films. Can you, everything costs yeah. more. Can you imagine that, though? Than the entire budget of most Bollywood films. Like, just having a film set be part of your life if you live in that city? Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, uh, in Los Angeles, they left the uh, the set of Intolerance. The D.W. Griffith film, Intolerance, mm-hmm. they left the sets standing of that for probably 10, 15 years after it was done. And you just got used to it being a part of the city. Yeah, I think Stroheim's, the, the set for Stroheim's Foolish Wives also stuck around for a long time. Another film that, again, you know... I love these stories of these movies where the budget just continues to spiral out of control. Like Greed as well? Yeah. Or, like, that movie was, what, eight hours long or something? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No one has seen the eight-hour cut of Greed, or anyone that has has passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, no one living has seen the eight-hour cut of Greed. Um, and I just... I love these stories of just these... These movies where the production, you know, just, you know, gets completely out of control. And what's remarkable, which we will get to, is how despite this, unlike Cleopatra, I've been led to believe, this movie actually works. Mm-hmm. You know, this is actually a success. So all of this, you know, ends up being worth it. it I would love to read a novel, actually, based oh, around yeah. filming this film because yeah, there's a great cool. novel around uh, Cleopatra called Beautiful Ruins mm-hmm. by Jeff, Jess Walters. And if there was something using this as a backdrop, because people lived and died over the course of this film being made. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it took, what, 12 years? You could have had a kid born and die mm-hmm. in that time. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it was it was the people involved's entire world. Mm-hmm. It took uh, 500 filming days. Wow. Which was a lot more than the average kind of 60 to 125 
uh, that was common at the time, obviously, depending on the size of the production. So were the actors loaned out to other movies in the meantime? Probably. Um, it seems like that happens fairly often in uh, Hindi films. I think so. I mean, at the time, most Bollywood actors were working on multiple films that... Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, or, or not obviously, but um, and, um, the cast that we see here was not the original cast. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe um, one of the actors that they initially cast did die mm-hmm. before yeah. they started production. And, and Nargis was to be it. the other, was to be uh, an archaeologist. Yeah. But that didn't work out. Yeah. So, yeah, he didn't even use his um, initial cast. I mean, when you work on that big of a time frame, sometimes, you know, you're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. Each scene was filmed three times. For the different languages? In Hindi, Tamil, and English. Mm-hmm. Um, the English version is lost. It was never released. Um, people have looked for it. No one has found any of the English language footage. Now, that would be a find. They did release the Tamil version, and it bombed. Yeah, I, I, I read that. That, that seems strange, but yeah. it, it, it is a northern Indian story, right? Yeah. More so than the Tamil audience is probably interested in. But the failure of the Tamil version is why we never saw the English version, which is unfortunate because they were going to get um, Shakespearean, English Shakespearean actors to do the dubbing. Cool. Um, And as, again, something else we'll get to, the dialogue in this film is amazing. And I think, you know, the closest thing I could approximate it to in the English language is Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. the, it, it was exceptionally hard to um, film these scenes because of this lavish set, because there's a lot of mirrors and glass, which caused a lot of problems because they were sparkling all the time. And you maybe could see the camera. <laughs> um, and so they used a thin, like a combination of a thin layer of wax on the glass and mirrored surfaces, as well as strategically placing cloth around to bounce the lighting. Hmm. David Lean. Uh, apparently consulted wow. on this and said it was impossible. It would it was impossible to do this because there was too much mirrors. Hmm. And um, then then ne- he goes on to uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Nevertheless, yeah. they they found a way, and it took eight hours to light a single shot. I mean, that's another <laughs> epic film you could point towards is Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. For the scope that you're dealing with, especially in the battle scenes and stuff. Yeah, a movie I have seen, so potentially a, a little bit more useful. But I think, I mean, I think Gone, I think Gone with the Wind is the real touchstone here because, I mean, adjusted for inflation, Gone with the Wind has still made more money than any other Hollywood movie at this point. Does it make you want to watch it? Um, not really. Oh. I don't know. I, Inspector Fleming. Uh, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to hear more about Gullyasm? Yeah, th- <laughs> this episode is not about Gone with the Wind. That's um, next episode when we talk about Gone with the Wind. <laughs> One battle scene uh, used reportedly 2,000 camels, 400 horses, and 8,000 injured soldiers from Indian Army's Jaipur Cavalry 56th Regiment. Wow. Yeah, there's a... It's, it's always important, I think, when you watch... You know, a film from 1960 um, to remind yourself that they don't have access to the kinds of graphics and special effects that modern films do. And when you Mm -hmm. see a crowd of 8,000 people, you're actually seeing a crowd of 8,000 people. Yeah, I mean, what, the Red Army would get loaned out for this sometimes, too, as well as the Chinese Army? Yeah, like, Like, you can't fix these things in post with the the lighting and all the mirrors, and you can't... Uh, you know, just digitally create a group of people. What you're seeing on screen was what the camera was actually capturing. Yeah, I wonder how many takes they would do at that sort of level. Probably not too many. Mm-hmm. Um, well, most of the film was shot in black and white because when 
Okay, as he started the film, black and white was the standard. By the time he finished the film, Technicolor was this, the standard. Um, sections including the climax and the song PR Kia To Darna Kia. I hope I got that somewhat correct. Um, which is the scene where Anarkali is dancing for the king war shot and were presented. Uh, in color in the film. So it was released partially in black and white and partially in color. Sort of like when someone does a IMAX inset nowadays. Yeah, or um, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, Wizard of Oz, yeah. Yeah. Um, the entire film was eventually colorized and restored. They went through a lengthy process to restore this film, like a lot of classic Indian films. I'm thinking of um, Sajet Ray's Apu trilogy. The negatives were not kept in good shape. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. And they'd seen quite a lot of wear, and they had to... It took over a year. It took a couple of years to restore this film and then to colorize it. Uh, and the colored version came out in 2004, kind of fulfilling a dream that Kay Asif had uh, for the film to be presented in color. Uh, and this also, also it is the, the version, very yeah. first black and white film to be recolorized and re-released in theaters. The, yeah. So and the, I think to this, at this point, the only one, I'm not aware of any other. This is the version we watched, is mm-hmm. the colorized version. I mean, uh, Turner Classic Movies recolorized films for TV. Yes, that was but only I don't think, a home video. Yeah, there's never been a... Uh, yeah, it it's a weird sort of thing to do. It, yeah. If, if the color hadn't been in the original version, I would think it was kind of a strange thing to do, like... Why would you want to change this? But since there was color originally, and you could point to it and say, they wanted the whole thing to look like this. Yeah. That's the only reason why this project doesn't really rub me that wrong. At one point, KSC wanted to, you know, scrap all the black and white finish and completely refill in color. He was basically <laughs> Synecdoche, New York at that time, huh? Yeah. Um, and so, like, it bugs me. The stuff that Turner Classic did bugs me. I don't like seeing It's a Wonderful Life in Color. I think it's weird. I think it is. Because, you know, it, it, it wasn't that we were making films in black and white and then suddenly we started making films in color. And also, that movie was designed to be seen in black and white. That's how they made it. If they wanted it to be color, they would have made it in color. Exactly. Exactly. And so, to me, that is degrading uh, the image Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, so many great directors, and I don't remember all the movies that they colorized. I, I remember It's a Wonderful Life was one of them. So, you know, Capra framed those shots in a specific way. He lit them in a specific way. Mm-hmm. And adding color to that changes that mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a way that I find uncomfortable. Here, to me, it actually seems like the realization of a dream. And yeah. I, He's actually, he said that he wanted yeah. to do that. So in that case, it seems fine. And I didn't notice um, what scenes were originally shot in color and which scenes were recolorized. It was it was tough to tell. I think I could tell the climax. Yeah. Because there was maybe a bit more brown, maybe a bit more worn feeling. Yeah. Because the color in this, I would kind of call it a little hallucinogenic. Mm-hmm. It is extremely pastel and over-the-top and flamboyant and... You can tell that it's like being drawn over. Yeah. But when the whole thing looks like that, it's almost like, uh, not quite rotoscoping, but <clears throat> it works. Yeah. It works in the way that a rotoscope film does, and you can kind of get used to the experience. And they did a very good job of matching the color from then and now. Well, exactly. Like, it just, the, the restoration 
that they've done is impressive. There's a few times that looked a little bit weird, but this might also be because of the DVD we were watching. Yeah, that's true too. I so. think there's like there was really like neon orange color that was popping every once in a while. I, I I thought there was a little bit of blur sometimes when people move their faces, and it would be yeah. hard to light the panes of a face and colorize it at the same yeah. time. I, I I could see why that would happen. But overall, it's impressive. I would ultimately like you know a nice Blu-ray Criterion style Blu-ray of a restored black and white slash color version and a restored recolorized version um, with some nice features, mm-hmm. but we don't currently have that, and the version that we did have access to that we took out of the library was, was impressive. But that and Sholay Criterion Collection, come on. <laughs> Are you allergic to making money? Uh, so going back to the uh, the songs, Lata Mangeshkar recorded the lyrics to Piara Kia to Dana Kiai in the studio's washroom. Yeah. I, <laughs> this is a nice piece of trivia. They could not get the like proper reverb in the studio, so she recorded it in the washroom. And they're spending the amount of money on one song and dance sequence mm-hmm. to make a whole movie, and yet they didn't build a soundstage or something that she could sing on. I don't know. I mean, didn't hasn't Bjork like taken her microphone to like the ocean and sang there? Like this is some and, under- and they set up the mics really oddly for uh, David Bowie's Heroes, and he would like move to closer mics. You do? Yeah. I don't understand how sound recording works. I just know that she recorded in the washroom because that had the best acoustics for them. This is some sort of unknown armies type stuff now because, like, imagine if you went <laughs> to that bathroom. Could oh God! Deep cut, Matt. Our listeners are like, you're supposed to be talking about Bollywood. But imagine if you went to that washroom, you could conceivably get singing powers. Maybe uh, for those unaware, Unknown Arby's is a tabletop uh, role-playing game that Matt and I play sometimes. We'll leave a link in the notes mm-hmm. for the song. Mohabit Zindabad, uh, which is uh, Salim's execution scene, there was 100 to 1,000 backup singers. I'm inclined to believe it was closer to 100, mm-hmm. but I also saw the number up yeah. to 1,000 singers. There's a lot of guys in that scene. Yeah, but they're not all singing. Yeah. Like they, they weren't singing live on set. I mean, yes, but also potentially the most metal way of getting executed ever. We'll get into it later, but holy shit, that's, that's, a, that's an extremely over-the-top way to kill somebody. <laughs> yes. Um, the two <coughs> leads of the film, Dilip Kumar and Madhu Bala, had been dating for nine years and broke up during filming, so this obviously caused some tension on set, but they were committed to uh, working through it for the sake of the film. See, again, very Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And uh, Deepika and Ranbir and all kinds of... Uh couples that were not meant to be. Yes, yes. Um, and Madhubala herself had a very difficult time during filming. She had a congenital heart disease, which caused her to faint on set. Her jewelry was extremely heavy, and also the chains that she's wearing in uh, the scenes where she's imprisoned are real. <laughs> she decided to do it real, yeah. too. And they are elaborate, and they <laughs> they're real and they're fabulous. Well, they're they're very That's big. a little that's a little Seinfeld joke for you guys. Um and they caused uh, bruises and abrasions on her arms and she would sometimes need days to rest from the exhaustion that was making this film. Method acting. 
Yeah. Um, but it was all worth it. The film won the National Film Award for Best Feature Film in Hindi, three uh, Filmfare Awards for Best Film, Best Cinematography, and Best Dialogue, and has gone on to become one of the all-time classics. Mm-hmm. It is included in every list I've ever read of the top best Indian films or best Hindi films. Um, yeah, any research you do on Bollywood, this film is referenced. And for good reason. It mm-hmm. continues to be an acclaimed classic and one of the high points in um, Bollywood and Indian filmmaking. And you don't, and you don't start off your movie with the actual <laughs> state of India talking to you about what the movie is going to be if you don't have great big ambitions. Yes. And it, it worked. And it inspired a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, side note to uh, Bollywood Parks Dubai, if you ever want us to come by and review the rides, the restaurant, the gift shops, give us a call. We would love to come to Dubai and do that. Um, I know you're listening. so Yeah, in Bollywood Parks Dubai, which is a new theme park that opened in Dubai last year, um, they have a grand restaurant. We've only seen videos of it. Do you know what's astounding about that? Uh, named after Mughaliasm, and I believe uh, the... The restaurant itself is inspired by the sets and the the grandeur and how lavish the film is. Do you remember any scenes where they eat in the movie? I don't. Um, no, I don't. Not off the top of my head. It, so there's a restaurant based on a movie in which no food is shown. Well, I mean, what? They weren't going to base a restaurant after Dawadi Ishk. I know, but like, <laughs> you know, there's... There's got to be a few more movies that make sense. I mean, you know, I know what they're doing. They're just trying to reference the big classics. They've got a Cholet ride. they got all this stuff. Yeah. Maybe pick a movie that had a food element to it. I don't know. I think they're picking it for the the feeling. They're picking it for the environment. I haven't been in this The grandeur. I mean, I would, again, we'd love to go. If you, yeah. If anyone wants to fly us out to Dubai. We're great reviewers. I love rides. But I expect there to be artisanal glass and mirrors and feathers and drapes everywhere because mm-hmm. I, I want to feel like I'm, you know, eating on the set of Magaliasm. That's that's what I think they're going for. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not too sure. I know. Um, I'm just kidding around. <laughs> the film's also been extremely influential on um, Bollywood cinema, especially on Oman Kumar, who has, does a lot of the um, production work for Sanjay Leela Pansali. And there's kind of a prequel made, Joda Ak- Akbar, starring uh, Rithik Roshan? I don't know if that's technically a prequel, but it is um, about... It, it is a story that comes before this film. It's about the, the, the emperor and his wife, right? Yeah, because the film is based on um, history. And so I think that uh, that sums up everything I wanted to say about um, the production of the film. Should we go into the story? Or I feel like, again, most of our listeners are going to know it. But uh, let's see if I can remember it off the top of my head. Okay. So Dilip Kumar um, plays young Prince Salim. Mm -hmm. Young, uh, in quotes, (laughs) because he looks to be about the same age as his father. Right. Um, But... uh, at the very, very beginning of the movie, his father, um, Akbar, is praying for a son, hasn't been able to get a son. He's the Mughal emperor, a proud Muslim emperor, right? Uh, yes. Uh, Akbar is Muslim, Joda is Hindu. Yeah. So he's praying for a son, goes to see, uh, goes to make an offering, and gets a son. The son is a bit of a uh, layabout, a malcontent. When he's seven or eight years old, he catches him drinking. So he says, that's it. You're going to the army. 
And uh, yeah, Salim is a warrior prince. He mm-hmm. conquers a lot of places and eventually comes back to, uh, you know, join the court again. Uh, while at court, um, a new fun thing is being unveiled. There's a, a new statue that the court's uh, sculptor has made that is apparently incredibly beautiful. And Salim can't, uh, he can't help but take a look at it. And he, it's, it's behind kind of a beaded curtain. So he takes a look at it and says, yep, uh, that's the face of the woman I'll love right there. Mm-hmm. Um, the next day when the statue is actually unveiled, they unveil it in a cool way by shooting an arrow at uh, the string holding it and then it falls down. And lo and behold, we find out that uh, it's not actually a statue. It's actually Anarkali, the uh, dancer girl uh, in the court who has been painted to look like stone. Mm-hmm. And Salim is... You know, shocked. It's love at first sight. Again, second sight. Can I also quickly mention the sculptor looks like a dead ringer for Ted Raimi? <laughs> yeah, uh, Ted Raimi, uh, who most people would know from Xena, Xena Evil Dead 2. Yeah. Lots of Ted Raimi films. He's in those. <laughs> Sam Raimi films. Sam Raimi films. Well, they're all Ted Raimi films when he shows up. <laughs> um, so, yeah. The romance between Salim and Anarkali, who started off as Nadira, but is given the name Anarkali for her grace and her beauty and her dancing mm-hmm. by Akbar. Which I believe means pomegranate seeds. Yeah, There's it's, your food connection. There we go. <laughs> Every food item is including pomegranate at the um, Mughali Azam restaurant. Uh, but they, their love affair continues. And while there's another woman at court, uh, Bahar... Played by Nigar Sultana, who is interested in Salim, as one would be in an available prince. There really is no keeping the two of them apart. Unfortunately, Akbar definitely wants to keep them apart because <laughs> yeah. he can't have the prince marry just some random dancing girl. He should be married off to a queen or something. Mm-hmm. So Political marriage. Yeah. So he throws her in jail. and With some very heavy chains. Some extremely heavy chains in the jail. And what happens is a war between father and son erupts. Yeah, it's essentially a film about a son, a prince, who goes to war with his father, a king, um, over the love of a woman. Mm-hmm. Extremely Shakespearean, extremely... Like, it's possibly based on some real history? It is. Uh, the film has been criticized for its historical inaccuracies, to which point I go, who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, I understand, however, in India, they care very deeply for these things. I mean, just look at... Uh, Padmavati. Exactly. The new Sanjay Lila Bansala movie, which keeps getting attacked by people who are not uh, mm-hmm. interested in having this uh, story told. Exactly. Uh, as well as, you know, all the criticisms that he faced for Bajar Mustani. Mm-hmm. Um, People take their history very seriously. Which I get, and which I admire and I appreciate. But, I mean, look at us. We're Canadians, and we weren't about to boycott or actually sabotage. Strange Brew, the only <laughs> Canadian film that uh, really accurately depicts what it's like to live here. I was going to say Argo. Oh. Um, no, Strange Brew is a better movie. <laughs> Which is a Argo is a film that uh, that a lot of Canadians have taken issue with because it doesn't present things historically and downplays uh, Canada's involvement in the in, Iran hostage crisis. Exactly. Um, so that's just an example off the top of my head. I think we accept that um, movies and 
and and and stories, novels, comic books, uh, television shows. When they're adapted from history, they can't, you know, be historically accurate. They're none just, of us it's were impossible. around. None of us were around to see it. Yeah, it's impossible. You're, and also, you're already relying on the adaptation of historians who yeah. might be writing centuries after the fact. Exactly, and you know, they also have to be able to take some liberties uh, to make a dramatic and engaging narrative. You know, to be perfectly honest, I don't actually want, you know, a documentary of what happened here. I'd You could watch a documentary for that. There is an entire uh, genre of film devoted to hopefully showing the truth or bending the truth in an interesting way. Yeah. But like a or cinema versions of the truth. A cinema verite is supposed to be a- accurately reporting what happened. But you can't do that with something that happened twelve hundred years ago. No, and so I think, you know, like Using history to make entertainment is kind of part and parcel of you know this style of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. The and epic, the epic style based on historical events. You can never adequately know the entirety of what yeah. happens in any event. Yeah, I mean, for example, Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lawrence's homosexuality is downplayed. It's all yeah. It depends on the mores of the time. If someone were to remake Lawrence of Arabia now, I'm sure. That aspect of his life would probably be a little bit more front and center. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if uh, Anne Curley was a real person. Um, there's some historical truth to it, but the film is certainly not, you know, verbatim what happened. And it, it could never be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm certainly not one to take issue with it. Um, but we, I, we understand why some people do. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoy the film. I think you also really enjoyed the film. It blew by. For a movie that's three hours long, you know, it it didn't drag. And we will get into what we enjoyed about the film after our interval. What song are we playing for interval today, Matt? So we are playing Terry Miffle Mine. Main. Main. Terry <laughs> Miffle Main. Which uh, is sung during a scene where um, Anne Curley and her rival... Bahar are having a, a song duel. About, it's like a rap battle. Like a rap battle about uh, their understanding of the meaning of love. And that was Terry Mifflemain. Mine. Someday we'll learn <laughs> how to say things in this beautiful language that forever escapes me. I was regaling uh, my friends the other day, uh, who are, are not Indian and do not speak Hindi, uh, with all the Hindi that I know. Um, be, and all I was saying was uh, film titles. <laughs> Nah. <laughs> and they were really impressed. And I was like, yeah, but I don't think so. Knowing how to say, you will never live this life again, will be very useful even when I travel to India. Um, and I certainly don't think knowing how to say, the brave-hearted will take the bride away, will be useful. Is that first one Zindagi Namalagi Dabara? Yeah, Zindagi Namalagi, yeah. Just rolls off the tongue. It does. I remember when I was taking Italian class, and I'd always have to write little uh, things. And... 
Invariably, I would just send the character to a restaurant and say, <laughs> Voglio mangiare due pizze, uh, molto, pi- mo- molto panini. Like, just naming off every food item I could think of because that would just add to my word count. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Eddie's today uh, loved reading my pieces. So, in summation... You heard it here, here, folks. Here's how you cheat in language class. In summation, uh, we're obviously doing our best to pronounce these these, these titles and Someday. names and song titles. Maybe we'll get Rosetta Stone or something and just start actually learning Hindi. Okay. Uh, so, Matt, uh, we have covered uh, the interesting production story behind Magali Azam. It's uh, stature... In um, the in the Bollywood film canon, um, and the narrative, and now it's time to get into what we thought of the film. Mm-hmm. I really liked it, but there's a few things that I thought were a little bit lacking. Yeah, for a movie that had a thousand people on screen, sometimes mm-hmm. there were not a lot of characters in the movie. No, it could you could easily, I think. Stage this as a play. I agree, but I actually think that that's a strength of the film. While there are a lot of people on screen, I appreciate that I didn't have to keep track of a lot of different characters. I mean, I don't even think there's a subplot. No, not really. It's it's straightforward one story. And while that story is elegantly told, I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of meat on it. I Yeah, I don't know. I think... I think that there's something to be said for keeping things straightforward um, and for kind of keeping the film always on topic. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, adding more characters, adding a subplot, that kind of thing would potentially detract from the beautiful visuals on display, from the songs. Yeah, I didn't really need, like, comedic relief. Yeah, it, it it seems weird for the the culture that made Masala mm-hmm. for one of the you know high points in the cinema to be the complete opposite. Well, I mean, it could it, almost be a two hander, really. You could yeah. have you could have Salim and Anarkali as two actors, and then have you know uh, peanuts, adult noises, or something being the parents or that kind of thing, like. Their their relationship is so strong on screen that it almost doesn't need anything else. But I think you need the father, and I think you need Bahar to kind of Bahar did not amount to much at all. Yeah, but you need that rival um, for Salim's affection. Well, you know, you, is she even a rival? To drive the story. Is she even a rival? I mean, he has eyes wants- for Anarkali as soon as he sees her behind yeah, that no, veil. Yeah, no, but she wants to think she, that she is. But she maybe lasts for about half an hour and then realizes, no, I'm not getting in the middle of this one. Well, yeah, because then the the um, tension between the father and son takes over, mm-hmm. and that becomes the driving force of the film. But you need her to kind of um, aggravate that tension. Yeah, I mean, I guess I am arguing for one less character in a movie that I thought could have used a couple more, but... I guess but I, I think another. That there's a there's a kind of a a stage quality to it. I think this could, aside from you know the scenes where you need um, you know thousands, thousands of, of people, yeah. um, you really could adapt this to the stage. I'm sure it's very been done. easily. I think that's partly because the dialogues are exquisite from 
from what we gathered from the uh, subtitles, which were pretty good. Yeah, this is this seems like a decent English translation. There was, um, you know, I'd, I'd heard a lot about uh, the the poetry to, to how the this film was written, uh, and I think that translated. It did feel mm-hmm. it wasn't as kind of. Um, uh, I don't know, arch maybe as flowery. Shakespeare, yeah, flowery as Shakespeare, but there was a a poetry to it that I think really uh, gives the film a strong impact. And there must have been a uh, translation um, of the dialogues in English because they filmed it in English. Yeah, that would be. Remember that story that we heard on tape that one time about the video store that had all the movies that never happened? Yes. This would be number one on my list. That and uh, Magnificent Ambersons, the full version. Greed in Get greed in there. (laughs) All these movies that exist only as uh, memories or as log items that we'll never see. Yeah. The English translation of this would be astounding. And I feel that had that come out, it could have broken Bollywood into the ma- mainstream way yeah, earlier because it could have um, been like a Kurosawa film or something that was enjoyed by critics and things mm-hmm. at its time as opposed to you know even now critics don't review Bollywood movies in the yeah. West um, this could have been a breakthrough hit back then yeah and, and the, it's, it's a, just a real shame and the craft on screen is also kind of unparalleled you know, I think we were in awe of these costumes and these sets and just kind of the the spectacle of it all. And, you know, sometimes you have a really great script, but you don't really have the, uh, the aesthetics or the visuals. Or sometimes you have great aesthetics. I, I feel like this happens more often than not. So have, Aria, like you mentioned before. Yeah. It looked amazing. The story was stupid. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you have great aesthetics, great visuals, but you know the the story doesn't quite amount to much. And here, everything's kind of working perfectly together. Well, we watched uh, Kubo and the Two Strings last night, yeah. and that's something that I think happens a lot in animated films: is that the animators, the director, and also the time frame that it takes to make an animated film, mm-hmm. and the sort of Genericity that comes from having to record dialogue, then make the movie. Right. I feel like a lot of the time you can't... Uh, like, animators are just pleased to have a movie that looks amazing and not necessarily has an amazing story. Mm-hmm. Whereas the like of films... I haven't seen Box Trolls, but all the other ones have great stories in addition to being visual marvels. Yeah. And I would say this one also does that. You could tell that there's a ton of work behind the scenes and they spent a lot of money... But it's not. That's not the only focus of it. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll remember the love story between uh, Salim and Anarkali more than I'll remember every single um, shot of a mirrored wall, that kind of thing. Right. But they're there too. Yeah, yeah. All those things um, build up this love. It's story. not it's just a spectacle. It's exactly. a spectacle wedded to a two-hander love story. Exactly. Well, again, I think you're kind of downplaying the role of Akbar. Yeah, he's definitely the most. The third most important person. He is. And I think that... And Anarkali is actually gone for large portions of the movie oh, yeah. while she's stuck in the dungeon and it's Salim and Akbar going. That tension head. between Salim and Akbar. I mean, we see... <laughs> we have seen so many Bollywood films about the relationships between fathers and sons. And mothers and sons. And, 
Yeah, and yeah, Joda doesn't get as much to do here as as Akbar does, but I think that's you know it, it it's both um, Salim's re- relationship with Madhubala as well as uh, this relationship with his father. I think those are the two things that are really like it's not just this love story; it's primarily a love story, but I think that's also a real driving force, and I think that's something that um, an aspect of the film that's become iconic that. Um, many, many films after it have, you know, continued to look towards, in the same way that they've continued to look towards um, this love story as a prototype for the Bollywood love story. It's not often that you get a fairly close family drama about who should our son marry? That kind yeah. of thing. Well, and Wedded to 6,000 Indian soldiers battling each other with giant cannons and elephants. Yeah. And flags flapping in the breeze. And it's narrated by India itself. India this, itself. This is the story of India. Do you think Asif goes in thinking, this is a big story. Only one person could do it. Mm-hmm. India. India is the narrator of my tale. Yeah. There's been a lot written on how the film portrays both the Hindu and Muslim religions. Because mm-hmm. um, Joda is Hindu, and so there's a, a big statue of one of the Hindu de- deities, and that was made completely in gold. Of course it, it was. It was actually made in gold. Why wouldn't it? It's like it's M- not a color. It's like MC Hammer directed this movie back when he was still rich. <laughs> um, and so you see, you know, this Muslim king who has a Muslim son, uh, celebrating this Hindu festival. Um, I kind of would have liked to have seen... I think I would have liked to have seen more of that aspect. Because, I mean, it has India itself narrating it. So I would have liked to have seen more of those sh- those colors, those shades, those ideas of, mm-hmm. these, of these kind of two contrasts. Um, coming together, coming together in Salim. Do you want it to be more of a metaphor for the uh, the situation religious-wise? I guess I guess if you're going to have India narrate your movie, I don't completely see like what allegory this story is telling about the nation. Well, it's a nation that, you know, again, over the course of the filming of this movie, went from being a colony to being its own country. Yeah. And has a son that is... It's a couple who rule the country, have a son who's the next generation, who's a Muslim, takes after his father, but respects the Hindu tradition as well. Mm. Um, And it, you know, points a way forward for a country just coming into its own Mm -hmm. after years of being colonized. Okay. That could be a metaphor. Yeah. Do you think that's intentional? Um... You have India itself describing yeah. your movie. I think that Asif is trying to tell a, mo- uh, a story about the entire country in a way. Mm-hmm. And he's using one, an interesting period of history to lay out this idea. And what the idea is exactly, I don't know if I'm well-versed enough in the history of the, mm-hmm. the country to say so. But to me, I feel like... The hopeful ending of this... I mean, I think we get spoiled. The movie's 50 years old. The the ending of this movie is a lot more hopeful than I thought. Right, yeah. And, um... Hmm. I don't remember if we actually knew what religion Anarkali was. I'm guessing Hindu, but... I'm not too sure. The fact that she does not die and that Akbar spares her life 
I think is a hopeful note for this country just coming into its own. Yeah. That, uh, you know, regardless of divisions between father and son, regardless of a war fought for uh, his potential bride, in the end, even though you might have to um, sacrifice, you can do so and still live. Mm-hmm. You do, no, no, no one necessarily needs to die for their beliefs, to die for their love. Um, you might feel like you died. You might feel like you want to die, but you could continue living. Mm-hmm. And for a country that had just partitioned itself into two, that might be a uh, a note that he was heading towards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, it seems that um, kind of these these reflections on the nation uh, are, are are not accidents. Yeah, I think I, I, got, I, I think I picked a little bit of this up in that Mihir Bose. Uh, yeah, uh, but Bollywood I, book. I don't think they are. Um, I think I think it's all subtext. Yes. Um, yeah. It's not. Well, again, you have the actual country yeah, narrating yeah. the movie. Yeah. But, but what I'm trying to say is, as opposed to something like Mother India... Mother India is makes, very <laughs> explicit in its political yes, leanings. Exactly, which makes a very explicit allegory. I think... It's Gavi not even an allegory. ...is more of... These things are more um, a reflection of its time period. It's poetry it's rather than And it's poetry prose. than, um, you know, written on the text. I know. I think you could, you could spin quite a few different um, readings of this film and it would hold up to them and mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why yeah. it's a great film yeah and it is very rich and there is a lot of depth and it's it's fascinating for me to to kind of think about these these larger implications um on on a film that you could easily dismiss for just being you know this romantic spectacle it's an epic and it's small scale yeah and i don't know of a lot of movies that can pull that off gone with the wind that's one Mm-hmm. Uh, Rashomon, that kind of thing. Yeah, you think so? It's, it, well, it's Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai, yeah. Seven Samurai is better than Rashomon for this. But it is in that pantheon of a national myth-building film. Yes, it is. It very much is. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of the performances here? I hate to sound so negative, but I think I could have got more out of Dilip Kumar. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah. he's very straight-laced and plays his emotions very close to the chest. And for a guy who goes to war with his own father, is pretty chill about most things that happen. Yeah, I agree. He freaks I out thought... a little bit by the end once an Archeli is uh, stolen from him. But for a guy who's supposedly racked with love and emotion, he's uh, surprisingly low down on the emotional totem pole. Yeah, I agree. I thought Madhubala... Um, she was fantastic. Gave, uh, yeah, an amazing performance. She looks amazing. Oh, and she has such emotion on screen. And, and really kind of like... She has the right kind of heightened emotion that you need in a film like this. I really loved Prithviraj Kapoor as Akbar. I thought he had the the stature and gravitas. the gravitas. Yes, but but Dilip Kumar just he really. We should watch some more movies with him and him. Oh yeah, because see, I mean, he's iconic. Uh, he's in Bill Murray's Devdas, among many other films. But I just couldn't. I couldn't really connect with him he's whereas cold. He's, the he's, other two yeah. um i just thought you know had had a lot of presence on screen but kumar well you know uh akbar and anarkali are in you know one of the more romantic shakespeare uh plays they're in 
Romeo and Juliet or something like that. Right. Kamar is playing Hamlet. And he, <laughs> he is, is, yeah. He is very cold and detached. Yeah. And I think you could see why she falls in love with him. He's mm-hmm. nice to her, which... He's the prince. He's I don't the know. prince. I, I don't think there's a lot of nice princes out there. Yeah. And he's he's got a poet's soul. He writes poetry in his own blood after a battle that he sends back to his father. Mm-hmm. And he looks at his blade. And that's pretty cool. But then when he gets back to court, he's not overawed by anything. Mm-hmm. Even the love of his life. Do you think these... I know. We're so, we're so um, critical of this film, especially myself. But, you know, there's a lot of elements to it that are just a little weird. I don't think we're being too critical. I think we've heaped a lot of praise on it. Yeah. But there are yeah. certain aspects of the film that just because um, there's aspects of it that we're critical of, it doesn't mean that we don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, In fact, that's probably the symptom of liking it too much is that you sit there and think about it a lot. Well, exactly. And having to record a podcast. That too. But it's, to it's not rolling out of my brain immediately after I see it. I, I've been thinking about it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you think that these um, execution methods are historically accurate? I mean, I hope so. Because <laughs> when I am executed for my crimes, I would like to be tied to a pole and then shot at with a cannon. Because that is a hilariously over-the-top way to die. And I'd like to be buried alive in a wall. Uh, I would much rather be shot by a cannon than be buried alive in a wall. But it is extremely over-the-top. Hey, I, I would then get to escape. Oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, spoiler but that's alert. Such a, I mean, man, the image of walling her up, you know, like, there... I was genuinely surprised. I thought she was done. Oh, God. I think there there's some real, you know, just Im- impressive and, you know, and... Shooting the arrow, dropping the uh, veil of beads oh, around Oh, yeah. There's just, there's just some images that, that I think still have power and impact, even us watching it, you know, mm-hmm. so many years later in our living room we're still able to to connect with with these things it's it's really remarkable so do you think um that every bollywood fan should see this film do you think it should be taught in world cinema courses see i don't know which which film would you put on uh on your survey of world cinema shole mother india mother india i mean Mother India is so tied to Indian history, so tied to becoming a nation of its own right and modernization and this this woman succeeding against all odds, again, very much like uh, Gone with the Wind in her own way. Uh, Shole, uh, the young nation, young, I say young, it's, a, it's an extremely old nation that has recently just gotten its groove back, mm-hmm. but it's... It's a boisterous adventure, um, classic friendships, classic uh, romances, um, a guy getting both of his arms cut off. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I think Mughali Azam does not reflect a lot of other Bollywood movies in its way. Like, the masala becomes so important that it being a epic of low scale proportions if that makes any sense mm-hmm. it's just it's not indicative so if the course was here's here's a, a in, in a movie that would indicate kind of what movies are like in the most part in, in uh, Hindi cinema I'd say maybe Sholay yeah if well, you could take the part of the prison out because that was dumb 
See, I think I think I would go for Megaliasm because I think this this narrative, this um, spectacle, and I mean, it it does have it might not be full on Masala, but I mean, it does have the elements of a melodrama and a musical. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to say every Indian film should be Masala, no. but it's it's one of the dominant uh, styles. Yeah, exactly. If you're only going to be able to, you know put one Bollywood film, you know, what are you going to choose to represent? Um, and I, I only offered three options here. Obviously, we could I mean, it would be length. Race 2 is the one. <laughs> if, if I had my druthers, I think I'd put that on there. Um, but I think I, I would choose Megaliasm. And I think I... I think if you're interested in Bollywood and you haven't gotten to this film yet, I would highly recommend watching it. It's a classic. You do not need any knowledge of the history of the time. Yeah. That being said, I'm not going to go watch Gone with the Wind. I mean, Gone with the Wind has its pleasures. It's very long. Some of the, some of it has inadvertently become racist over the years. It was probably racist back then. Yeah. Um, But I feel like I'm saying, oh man, you got to see Mughaliyazm if you're interested in Bollywood. It's the Gone with the Wind of India. I haven't seen Gone with the Wind, and I'm interested in Hollywood cinema. So maybe I'm being a bit hypocritical here, but I think, uh, I think this is. This is a, a movie worth seeking out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the colorized version, um, extreme amount of care went into it. Yeah. And I can guarantee you've probably never seen a movie that looks this uh, over the top and mm-hmm. kind of amazing to look at. Um, just the colors, all these pastels and mirrored pastels, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it also made me want to watch Badra Mastani again. Oh, just, I really want to see Joda Akbar now. Yeah, I'd like to see that too. And, uh, you know, for Epics, we've got Bahubali 2 coming out next week, so that looks also pretty not good. Not even next week, the end of this week. Yeah. Again, not a not a Hindi film, but... Uh, um, but now, that's, currently, the most expensive video game film ever made. Yeah, and that's how you would do it these days with the CGI. Yeah. Some of it is really bad in Bahubali 1, by the way, but some of it is very good. <laughs> but this is what happens when you don't have the resources of the Indian Army at hand. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We will be back in a couple of weeks, and we will be joined by um, Brandon Schatz oh. of our local comic book store, Variant Edition, here in Edmonton. He is also a longtime podcaster mm-hmm. uh, and we are going to be discussing Krish and Krish 3 the biggest ah. superhero franchise in Bollywood we will be finishing off the cycle started with Koi Milgaia exactly in our Bollywood and Alberta episode comes to a close with uh, the saga of Krish and Krish 3 and Krish 3 uh, we'll also be appearing at a Northwest Fest on May 9th if you're here in Edmonton we will be at the Vinyl Needle Tavern? Yes. The, the Needle Vinyl Tavern? The Needle Vinyl Tavern. Yes. If um, you're flying in from India, we can maybe let you crash on your couch if you're going to come to the festival. And if you're short, we have a shorter sofa. Yeah, we have an apartment-sized couch, they call yeah. it. Uh, anyways, we'll be appearing at a panel on May 9th at noon discussing um, film podcasting with... Uh, your co-host. My co-host of uh, Trash on the Movies, Paul Matwichuk, and uh, J.P. Fournier of the movie jokes. Who we talk to about Jism and Jism 2. Yes. In the meantime, Matt, how can people keep up with the show? Well, you can check us out on Facebook. Look up Bollywood is for Lovers. We have a semi-active Facebook where mm-hmm. we uh, talk about upcoming episodes. People tell us things that we got wrong. 
uh, things to watch out for in our new movies. So that's always extremely helpful, and I would really, I really appreciate people talking to us on we it. Do. So, um, yeah, let us know what you think of this episode on there. Uh, you can check us out on Twitter. We're at Bollywood Pod. I'm at Matt underscore B-O-W-E-S. I'm at Erin E. Fraser, E-R-N-E, every S-E-R. You can check us out on Tumblr, bollywoodisforlovers.tumblr.com. Plus, you can find the show on any sort of podcasting uh, device that you iTunes, use. iTunes, Stitcher, Audio Boom, list goes on and on. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Audio Boom, we are closing in on 100,000 listens. So yes. Thank you, the one person who downloaded this 100,000 times. So we, <laughs> we like you a lot. Uh, we think you live in Pakistan. Uh, and while you're over at iTunes, please uh, leave us a star rating and a review. It really uh, encourages us to produce more episodes and uh, helps new people find the show. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again for listening and uh, bye. <laughs>